If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. If you do not have a copy of God's Word and you would like a, a hard copy to look off of, just slip up your hand and one of our church members will be glad to bring you a hard copy of God's Word. They're walking down the aisles now. We'll begin reading in uh, Mark chapter 10 here in just a moment. So we've been journeying through the book of Mark since last Easter, and last week we came to the difficult text found at the end of Mark chapter 9, where Jesus very seriously warns his followers against the seriousness of sin and the realities of hell. At the end of that warning about sin, Mark included this sort of transition from what we should flee from to what we should be striving for. He transitioned from things we should avoid to something that we should pursue. So I want you to look back at verse 50 again where we left off last week. Look at verse 50 with me. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Now this, this analogy about salt seems to be an excerpt from a more commonly known passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 sort of fills out the analogy for us to help us understand what Jesus is teaching here. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 says this, you, speaking to believers in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give Glory to your Father who is in heaven. So here's the idea behind the analogy. The world we live in is prone to corruption. So like meat in the sun in an age without refrigeration, our culture, our society, our civilizations, they spoil now, maybe a more contextual example would be like a fridge unopened since Hurricane Ida, right? Human society is rotten, and it becomes more rotten as time passes. It, it spirals out of control into deeper corruption. We're seeing this in our world all the time. And Christians, therefore, are called to be like salt, in a spoiling world. Salt preserves. 
Salt protects what is easily and quickly spoiled. Salt flavors what is tasteless. Salt heals what is wounded. Likewise, we're in a world of spiritual darkness. Humanity without God cannot see clearly. Rather than following the instructions of a creator, humanity without God makes up their own rules to their own destruction. So Christians are called to be like lights in that dark world. We shine with the truth of God and we help those around us in darkness to see clearly what the path of life is, what the path to life more abundantly is. We let our light shine before others so they might see and then become themselves glorifiers of the one true God. So this is what is meant when Jesus advocates for a salty community of believers, not salty like sassy, right? Some of you are like, check, right? (laughs) No, no, salty community of believers who are at peace with one another. If you remember back earlier in chapter 9, what Jesus warns against is causing one of these little believers to stumble. He he, He talks about it as a serious offense against God to cause someone else to fall away from God. So then at the end of his warning against sin and hell, then he gives you a charge not just to not cause people to fall away, but to help people be drawn near, to be salty, to influence communal life for good, not for evil. So with this instruction, chapter 9 ends, and Mark transitions to show Jesus on the move again. He's continuing his journey in Mark chapter 10 toward Jerusalem, toward the cross of his crucifixion, toward the very reason that he came. But in this next set of teachings in chapter 10, what we will see is how saltiness comes to life in several different areas for the Christian. Mark includes teachings here about how Christians who live for the kingdom of God will operate differently in the kingdom of man. You will think differently in all areas of life than the person in your workplace who does not follow Jesus. So in the coming weeks in chapter 10, what we find are discipleship lessons for for different sets of relationships. We'll see Jesus' teaching on our relationship to our possessions, our money. We'll see Jesus' teaching on our relationship to children, to the needy, to those who can't help themselves. We will see Jesus' teaching today on our relationship to the concept of marriage and divorce. Now, this is why we do expositional preaching, right? So we're just working through the Gospel of Mark. Last week was a sermon on hell This week is a sermon on divorce. Two sermons I would not have picked if you just gave me any passage I could pick in the Bible. (laughs) Especially not back-to-back, and I'm not sure which one I'd rather preach. Both difficult, both controversial, both things that God speaks into. And so we want to hear what God says about not just the things in life we want to hear what he talks about. (laughs) We want to hear God speak into every facet of life in a broken world. And so so let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Let's read uh, through verse 12, and then let's pause and just pray that God would help us to understand. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again... As was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, um, as we approach this topic, uh, I know that there are people in the room that at the very word divorce, there is a sting to the word. There's a reminder of pain and heartache and sorrow that has lasted decades. I know that there's some in the room that right now are fighting, considering, warring on the battlefield of marriage. They feel like they're running out of options. And Lord, I just pray that this would be a moment where the Holy Spirit of God speaks to preserve your design for marriage in this church for the world to see. God, we ask that you would use your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So as was Jesus' custom, it's not all about miracles. It's not all about healing. He is healing. He's working miracles to point to the teaching. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching. He travels into this new place, and it says he taught them. And as was the custom of the Pharisees, they came to challenge the teaching. They came to oppose the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. And so look at verse 2. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark makes clear the aim of the question. They came in order to test Jesus. And the issue of divorce, even in the first century, was a hot topic in Judaism and in the culture at large in Jesus' day. It was a debated topic, but it was an especially relevant topic because it was actually the issue of marriage and divorce that got John the Baptist beheaded. You remember Mark chapter 6, verse 17, after John the Baptist confronted King Herod on his unlawful divorce, and marriage of another. Look at what it says in Mark 6, verse 17. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So as Jesus moves deeper into Judea, he moves into territory that's under Herod's jurisdiction. And of course, the Pharisees would love for Jesus to stand up and publicly speak to the very thing that got John the Baptist's head cut off. The exact question that they are asking is a test on multiple fronts, right? (laughs) They're testing to see what he would say, and they'd be glad for him to say it loudly that Herod might catch word and, and take off his head as he took off John the Baptist's. The question they ask is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What they want to know is whether it is permissible, according to the Old Testament law, for divorce to take place. And Jesus answers, as he usually does, in a frustrating way, with a question, Right? They ask him a question, he asks them a question because he wants to not only provide the right answer, he wants to make sure they're asking the right questions. So he says, what did Moses command you? So so Jesus puts it back on them to search the scriptures for the proper answer. They're supposed to be experts in all things Old Testament. And so here's their response, verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. In other words, according to Moses, divorce is permissible. It's allowed. Now, there's only one passage in the Old Testament that they could be looking back at to try to find support for what they have just said, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, Moses does give parameters for what should happen if a divorce takes place. He does not, however encourage divorce. Moses provides parameters for what to do and not do if someone has had a divorce in the Israelite community. He regulated it in Deuteronomy, but did not affirm or encourage it. And Jesus explains why Moses had to address divorce at all. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So in other words, Moses had to give instructions about divorce that was already happening in the Jewish community because of your hardness of heart. Jesus then shifts the question. So the Pharisees are asking, what is permissible? It looks like in the Old Testament, it's at least allowed. Jesus transitions the conversation from what is permissible to what is most obviously the preferred will of God. So watch what Jesus does. He's, he's, he is a, amazing at navigating the conversation to get at the real heart of the matter. So look at verse 6. This is what Jesus says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, now we're going to look at God's will for marriage according to this teaching. But first, I just want you to see the two approaches to Scripture that be, are being modeled here. The one of the Pharisees and then the one of Jesus. Approach number one, hard hearts search scripture for what is permissible. Now, divorce was happening among men and women in Jewish society. 
And they wanted God to give such behavior a pass. So they're coming to the scriptures searching for evidence that might support their already desired position. And they find Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they let that one passage then provide relief and the free pass to end marriage as they please. That's what a hard heart does. When our hearts are hardened to the Lord, we already have a particular desire for our, our li- how our life will go, for the decision we will make, for the outcome of a situation, and we go to the Bible for the go-ahead which will support and free us to do what we already wanted to do. But that's not the heart pa- posture that I think God desires for us to have in matters of living for the kingdom of God in this life. That's not the approach of a new person in Christ Jesus, we should come to the Bible not trying to figure out how closely we can get to a line of sinfulness. We should not come to the Bible asking, what's the bare minimum of faithfulness so as to avoid cosmic consequences? We should not come simply trying to find out what's permissible in the scheme of things. Our strongest desire as followers of Jesus is not to simply do what we want, but it's to know what God wants. And to pursue that with all that we are and all that we have, we want to be the most faithful we can be. So we come to the scriptures with different kinds of questions. Jesus redirects from, is it permissible to what is God's intention for the covenant of marriage from the beginning? Do you grasp that first? So approach number two would be this, soft hearts search search scripture for what is most faithful. He wants them to seek God's most ultimate will. So he takes them back to the garden, to the way God designed gender and marriage before the fall of humanity. He wanted to lift their eyes to a greater vision of faithfulness, a more glorious vision of gender and the covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. So what's that vision that Jesus puts on display? Three convictions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage from what Jesus points us to. Conviction number one, God designed gender and marriage on purpose. God designed gender and marriage on purpose. Or put differently, gender and marriage is God's very good idea. And God knows better than any created being being what is absolutely best for his beloved creatures. Notice the emphasis on God's prerogative to create and determine what is good in these verses. Look at verse Six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So with all the infinite number of possibilities available to God, 
at the creation of the cosmos. He decided in all of his wisdom and power to create two genders who are very clearly physically, emotionally, psychologically different from one another. He planned for them not only to be distinct from one another, but he planned for them to come together in perfect union to not only complement one another, but to joyfully create more image bearers of God that would fill the earth with his glory. Amen. He even made the process of creating, and I'm not going to get into more details, he made the process of creating more people to be enjoyable. That's his idea. That's right. Thank you, ma'am. I just wanted, needed that help. Wasn't in my notes. Male, male and females are very obviously different. So that there's a glorious fittedness between the two, and their distinctions are what make them fit together for the purpose of spreading God's glory to the end of the earth. The distinction is on purpose, and it's God's very good idea. It's the unity of diversity that makes things beautiful in God's world. I mean, when different colors come together in the sky, we say it's a beautiful sunrise and sunset. Blue skies, white clouds, tall mountains, low valleys work together to provide moving views of the grandeur of God. The created order is one giant synchronization of God's creative flair, unifying diverse things. Marriage and the relationship between male and female is one of those grand, glorious reflections of the creator's creativity. The relationship was to be harmonious, glorious, permanent for the joy of both and the glory of God. And the design of the text is clear. Males and females would come together and unite with one another in such a way that they should never be separated for their good, and for the joy of all peoples. But obviously, right, something happened. Because all that was pretty language, but that didn't sound anything like the car ride here this morning, right? For some of you. Something happened. Verse 9 sheds light on the reality of an opposing force against the design of God. Verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, comma, let not man separate. Now, what, what's the assumption there? That man going to try to separate. Something's going to happen. The verse affirms something you already know, and this is conviction number two, that sin separates from God and one another. In sin, humanity strives against the design of God. Humanity rejects the purpose of God and now tries to separate things that God joins together. When sin entered the world, man began to doubt that God's ideas were good. When sin entered the world, the relationship between men and women would be thrown into conflict. The, Adam, in the very beginning, when, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Adam attempted to shift the blame to Eve rather than taking responsibility for his own sin. And so it began. And God warned that part of life in this cursed world would be the reality that male and females are fighting to rule over one another. 
If you've been following the Genesis reading plan that many of the church members are going through, I mean, we're working through Genesis, and we've seen adultery, polygamy, prostitution, rape, and abuse on every page of Genesis with few exceptions. The breakdown of the family, of marriage, of gender, is perhaps one of the clearest pictures of the doctrine of human sin in the world. Our rejection of male and female, our rejection of marriage, is a clear denial of original design. And it's evidence that the very core of who we are, because sin came in the world, we reject God's way no matter what. You remember, as Paul is trying to work through his systematic description of the doctrine of sin, he uses the breakdown of marriage and the breakdown of gender uh, as the quintessential example of rejecting God's way no matter what. So just listen with me. This will be a reminder for many of you in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as Paul's describing the world. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God's plain to them because God's shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they're without excuse for although they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is our world and it's why marriages fall apart. Because all of us, by our very nature, are truth suppressors. God's design deniers. And one is bad enough, but try bringing two together. (laughs) This is why marriage is hard. We are a people who want to point our finger at God and tell him that he is wrong with this whole join together thing no matter what. The Jews want to legitimate, legitimatize or get a pass to separate what God had brought together. And Jesus says, you guys are asking the wrong questions. There's a much bigger purpose for marriage than you are realizing. As usual, Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees led to a more in-depth conversation with disciples behind closed doors. You look at verse 10, the conversation continues when they get in the house. So in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, verse 11, and he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus says the same thing twice, and, and really remarkably, he dresses the male and the female. In his culture, uh, they would have cast blame on the female alone. They, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have hammered the male for his failure. Uh, Jesus says, no, 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 no. There, there is equal uh, value between male and female, and both are responsible for this thing that God's brought together. Jesus says the same thing twice. To the man, he says, if you divorce your wife to marry someone else, you are breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You're committing adultery. He says to the woman, if you divorce your husband and marry another, you are breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You're committing adultery. And the point is crystal clear, and this is conviction number three. God's will for marriage is restoration, not divorce. The very nature of marriage itself is a love commitment to another person till death do us part. It is a covenant promise, a holding fast to. There is no qualification in this particular passage for breaking that promise. Now, in other passages, you'll find only two conditions in which divorce is permissible, uh, in the case of physical adultery with another person or in the case of abandonment. But even then, divorce is not commanded or even commended. It's only permitted. Marriage, the God-ordained covenant union between man and woman, apparently is something so precious to God that it is to be fought for and preserved, if at all possible. Divorce, apparently, according to Jesus' very clear teaching here, is an absolute last resort, and there's something so special, so sacred so according to the will of an eternal God about marriage that it is a serious sin to abandon it or to break your commitment to it. And if, according to the will of an almighty God, it is the last resort and it is not even permissible except for abandonment or adultery, that means that Jesus followers, that means the salty Jesus followers have a responsibility in this broken and corrupting world to fight for their marriages at all costs. If divorce is not God's will, what's the opposite of that? If divorce is not God's will, then fighting for healthy marriages with everything you have must be God's will. To which we then just have to ask a, ask a question of this text, because the text just kind of moves on. We have to ask of Jesus, why? Why does God care about marriages being maintained? What if I'm miserable? What if I don't feel love for my spouse anymore? What if my spouse is a non-believer? What if my spouse isn't even trying? Why, God? Why, God, do you care? Why should I fight to restore a marriage when it seems like the easiest thing to do would be to end it and to move on with my life? Three reasons we fight for our marriages in a dark and corrupt world. Reason number one, Marriages fought for reflect the glory of God. Listen, the placement of this teaching corresponds with Jesus' teaching about salt and light in the world. The follower of Jesus is called by God to have such a view of the value of marriage that it is so different than the surrounding world and culture. 
the view of the value of the marriage and the willingness to fight for restoration at all cost is what actually functions as the kind of saltiness that our world needs. Marriages fought for and marriages maintained among Christians will be light posts in a dark world of separation and heartache. And one of the ways Jesus aims to expand the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of man is through salty, shining marriages where Christians count the word of God and faithfulness to Jesus worthy of all of their efforts to fight for their marriage. The saltiness of marriage fought for and maintained preserves more than you know. A marriage fought for produces blessings untold. The saltiness, if you will, of a marriage fought for preserves your children from so much heartache and long-term damage. There are unrecognized generational effects of a broken marriage. And just like the snake in the garden, he whispers in your ear that the consequences won't be that bad. The saltiness of a marriage fought for preserves your own soul and it shines the glory of God to the world. Now listen, Christian person in the room, if your marriage is hard right now and your spouse is anything but lovable, this should be some of the motivating fuel for fighting for your marriage because God says it's worth fighting for. He's warned against divorce strongly. Even your spouse who has made you Even if your spouse has made you so very angry to the point where you don't feel any love for them at all, may your love for God and your faith in his word and your desire to reflect his worthiness motivate you toward restoration and not separation. If you tell me, well, I don't even love my spouse, my response to you will be, do you love God who sent his son to die for you? Let that be your motivation that he knows better than you know what is best for you. And he's advocating for restoration. God calls us to a lot of difficult things in this world. Jesus warns you before you started following him that it would be a difficult road. Mark chapter 8 verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. This week we've seen God call Christians in Ukraine to do very difficult things. But a lot of times we put that in a different category than fighting for something like our marriage. (laughs) What if fighting for your marriage is an application of, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me? Pursue the health and flourishing of your marriage, not just for the sake of your spouse, not just for the sake of your children, but for the glory of the God who saved you. Reason number two. Marriages fought for make the gospel visible. So when God created men and women to join them covenantally together, unbreakably together in this bond of love that should not be broken, he did it with the intention of reflecting a far greater relationship. Uh, Jesus didn't create male and female and bring them together and then later the cross be a thing. Like, oh yeah, well that kind of works as an analogy. No, 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 no. God in his infinite wisdom put together man and woman in the garden knowing that their strife and their, their fight to love one another would one day reflect the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. 
as men and women commit themselves to one another no matter what, as they make great sacrifices for one another and seek the good for the other uh, rather than themselves, as they rejoice in the nearness to one another and give themselves to no one else, they reflect the relationship between Jesus and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, you know it well, but you need to hear it again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. Bound, And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's good news. That you and I were made for a relationship with God and we cheated on him. We gave ourselves away to others and we abandoned him and our actions should have cost us our lives and then God came for us. And he was born to live, to die, to rise again, to purchase me back even though I was unfaithful to him. He sacrificed himself when I was anything but lovely. And he still pursues me even to this day. Jesus is presently, you know, why, why should I pursue uh, my spouse who isn't pursuing me? Jesus is presently pursuing an unfaithful bride even as we speak. Because he pursues you in love whether you're pursuing him or not. He's washing us in the water of the word and wooing us back every time we turn our backs on him. And as we extend our love to our spouses, we do so with the same love Jesus extends to us. When we forgive, we, we never forgive more than Christ forgave us. <laughs> he's not asking us to do more than what he's done for us. When we sacrifice, we never sacrifice as much as Christ sacrificed for us. He's not calling us to do more than he did for us. This covenant relationship between husband and wife, it should be a safe space where when you sin against one another in the marriage, you sin within the covenant relationship. When, when you sin against one another, it doesn't change the relevance of the vows you made to one another. Like Christ committed to us no matter how short we fall, spouses are committed to one another no matter how short they fall, for better or for worse, till death do they part. And they will fall. And there will be worse times. <laughs> and that leads us to reason number three. There is always hope for broken marriages. Now, I'm not saying that marriage will never end in divorce because of the choices of one or both of the spouses. I'm not saying that things can turn around tomorrow or things that will turn around tomorrow. But I am saying that if we are to maintain a Christian perspective there is always, always, always room for holy optimism in every situation. Do you, do you get that? Like, like if you maintain a Christian perspective of the God that we serve, I mean, this is what faith is. We believe there's nothing that God cannot do. 
We believe that God can save the worst of sinners and the most obstinate, obstinate opposers of the gospel. We believe God, through the power of his spirit, is sanctifying me. He's sanctifying you. That, that there will be progress made in my spouse. That means that your spouse can change by the power of God. Don't say, oh, well, I don't want to change them. No, no, no. You better change them. They're sinful as can be. That's the whole point of Christianity. We're all growing and changing. Your marriage five years from now can look different than it looks right now because of what we believe about the Holy Spirit of God. This is what God does. He works in hopeless situations through helpless people to bring glory to his name through restoration of what has been broken. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. There is always hope for broken marriages. So as Genesis says, hold fast to your spouse and let, let not man separate what God has joined together. Now, let me conclude uh, because, I mean, this sermon's falling on a whole lot of different ears in a whole lot of different life places, right? So let me conclude. I mean, this has been a wild sermon, right? You got two approaches, three convictions, three reasons. Let me give you four words to four different groups of people to close us out. Four final words. Number one, to the divorced in the room. Rest in the gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and that word divorce brings up painful memories that you have long suppressed and tried to forget. The suffering, the sorrow, the ripple effects of a broken and ended marriage are real and they're lasting and if that's you and you've endured a sort of separating or a severing of what God brought together, let me encourage you this morning. Jesus certainly does condemn divorce. But that condemnation for your divorce and whatever fault you played in it, if any, that condemnation was taken care of at the cross of Christ Jesus. If you turn to him for the salvation of your soul, you stand declared righteous as if that divorce had never happened before God Almighty on the last day. He died on the cross to bear your shame and guilt and sorrow so that you don't have to bear it anymore. Rest in the gospel and thank him for his mercy, whatever marital failings may be behind you. Number two, to the married in the room, take divorce off the table of discussion. In premarital counseling, I urge young couples moving toward marriage to take the word divorce out of their vocabulary. It should never be the case that one spouse threatens the other with leaving. It only creates more distrust and separation. It only increases the difficulty. The beauty of marriage is that it's a relationship bound by vows to one another. I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse until death do us part. The relational assurance is what makes the marriage relationship so strong. I know this person will not leave me no matter how bad and awful I am. The same way I know my Jesus will not abandon me no matter how hard I fall. It's the covenant security of the marriage which makes makes the marriage so special. I can be who I truly am in front of Anne Marie because I know she's not going to leave me. I can be honest. I can fail. I can express my frustration. 
we can have a heated moment. But I don't tremble in fear that she's going to leave me any more than I tremble in fear that the God of the universe will forsake his covenant to me. And that makes the relationship beautiful. It makes fighting possible in a healthy, good way. Listen to what Tim, listen, listen to what Tim Keller says that we should remind ourselves of in moments of fighting. He's, Tim Keller says this, say to yourself something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't say, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That's why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promise you made on your wedding day. Number three, number three, to the single person. To the single person, maybe I should have done this at the beginning. To the single person, care about marriage. If you hadn't cared for the last 37 minutes, then go back and (laughs) re-listen. To the single person, care about marriage. Just because you are single. And even if you are single for the rest of your life, which, by the way, is more than okay according to the scriptures. Marriage is not essential to human flourishing. Paul says if you cannot uh, marry and focus on the work of the ministry, then praise the Lord. You'll have less trouble. (laughs) But even that does not mean that you should never think about marriage. You should seek to have a firm grasp on what God's doing in the world through marriages. You're a part of the body of Christ. You're a part of the family of God the Father in this church. You will undoubtedly find yourself discipling, befriending, and encouraging married people. And you do not have to be married to give wise counsel to married people. You just got to know your Bible well. Right? You don't have to have bad experiences to speak what is true. So, so befriend married people. There's not some sort of dividing line in the church. It's like, well, married people, they go over here and disciple one another. And single people, they go over here and disciple one another. No, no, no. We need everyone coming together in the body of Christ. Care for other people's marriages. Ask how they are doing. Provide accountability and encouragement and admonishment when necessary. Marriage is hard, and sometimes we need faithful brothers and sisters surrounding us to help us make it another day. So care for marriages, and I'll just add, and prepare prepare well for yours if that is your desire. All right, number four, and lastly, to the Christian Married to a non-Christian. Show them Jesus. Now, I think you can look into the New Testament and you can see that it is not God's will that a Christian willfully marry a non-Christian. If you are single, that should be an immediate deal breaker for a potential spouse. There are people here, there are people in this room who are presently married to non-Christians and they're Christian, and they will be glad to meet with you to tell you how difficult that reality is. But if you are married to a non-Christian, you are in that position for a reason, and the most important thing for your spouse is that they be eternally saved on the day of judgment by putting faith in Christ. And you are their up-close, personal representation of what Jesus is like 
Not just what Jesus said, but what Jesus is like. You are God's display to them of how valuable Jesus is to you, what Jesus' message is for them, and how you show love to them will be how they understand God's love for them. Caring for the spiritual condition of your spouse is the most important kind of care and love we should have for our spouse. So let me, let me close with this. Marriage in a broken world, obvious from Jesus' teaching, is difficult. Obvious from Jesus' teaching, divorce is a danger and man tries to separate what God brought together. And marriage in a broken world is impossible without the supernatural power of God to keep together what he joins together. Let me, if you're overwhelmed this morning by this, you do not have what it takes to fight for your marriage in your own strength. So let me just go ahead and take that burden off of you. You don't have what it takes by yourself. It will only be through Christ Jesus in you that you will find the words to say and you will find the will to stay as he stayed for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that Jesus will be made known in our church through our marriages. Help us to fight for them as a community of faith. Father, we, we confess our inability, and we pray that in this moment we would refocus on the reality that it is in Christ alone that things can be restored in a broken world that souls can be restored that churches can be restored that marriages can be restored and so Lord we just throw ourselves upon you to live in light of your design for the marriage relationship we love you and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen